Hello again, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the OIS podcast. It's great to be here in 2023 and to take a look to the future. We have a fabulous guest today who can really help us look to the future and indeed to the metaverse. Dr. Kaiser Kaderi is a clinical associate professor at the Bayes Eye Institute at Stanford University. Kaiser is also the director and founder of the Stanford Human Perception Laboratory and Stanford Vision Performance Center. He's also a member of faculty at the Stanford Institute for Human-Centered AI. If that weren't enough, Kaiser is a renowned neuro-ophthalmologist, technologist, and futurist. He's founded multiple companies and has an extensive clinical practice and has a view to the future. Kaiser, it's a real privilege to have you here today. Uh, it's a real privilege to be here. Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me on the, on the podcast. So we definitely want to hear more about your views on the metaverse, the intersection of technology and bio. But first of all, Kaiser, give us a flavor of your career to date and your career arc. What's really motivated you and what's brought you to where you are right now? We'd love to know more. Uh, do you want the long version or the short version? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're here in a podcast, so you can tell us uh, the longer version. No, seriously, it would be really great to hear because I think like many guests on the podcast, you have this non-linear kind of career, which many folks on the podcast can really resonate with. So please tell us the, the story behind uh, Kaiser. The story behind me, well, uh, it started, you know, I started med school at a, a relatively young age. And at the time, you know, I didn't quite know what I wanted to go into, like most folks as they go into medicine. You know, some folks have some ideas, but most most are discovering what really resonates with them. I had the opportunity, I did my medical school at the University of Utah. And so I worked obviously very closely with the Moran Eye Center. And, uh, um, and I met Alan Crandall and Randy Olson very early in my career. And, you know, it was great to have mentorship of, of of such caliber and i was able to go to a uh, a medical mission in ghana and that that you know the parts about ophthalmology that i think resonates with anyone that's you know in our field is is kind of what i saw the ability to have a uh, significant and immediate impact by you know assisting in cataract surgery at that time and also the fact that it blended a lot of technology you know, it seemed like we were at the cutting edge, even at that time, just from observing and assisting. And, you know, it, it didn't hurt that, you know, I was working with Alan and his fellow that a lot of you might know of, you know, Ike Ahmed uh, at the time. And so, you know, I got a, I know not only got the experience, but I also got mentorship from folks that were very much uh, you know, innovators in the space and were very keen to adopt new technologies. So, you know, very early in my career, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was both inspirational and it was also, you know, something that, um, you know, not a lot of people get. So I took it upon myself to, to continue that throughout my career. So when I was in residency, I wanted to do something, uh, formative, something that was different, mm. something that was innovative based off, based off, you know, what I saw from my mentorship as a, as a med student. So during my residency at University of Arizona, you know, I actually had a, you know, I'll, I'll, gi I'll give Ike this credit. Uh, I'll give him a lot of credit. <laughs> but, um, you know, he, he had done some work with athletes when he was a resident at uh, the University of Toronto with the Toronto Raptors. And it's pretty interesting, some of his observations, um, you know, some of the athletes, one, you know, you might know of as Steph Curry's 
uh, father, Del Curry, he was a, he was a player at the time and they tried to correct him to 2020 vision because he was playing with 2030 with corrective lenses. He was wearing contact lenses and it threw off his game. He actually performed poorly with 2020 vision. And it's interesting because, you know, that's a benchmark that we still use today with whatever that's we right. do. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, he went back to his contact lenses at 2030 and was happy. And, you know, he was one of the best shooters at that time. Obviously, his son has taken over that mantle. And, you know, it was that kind of thought that just like, huh, there's a little bit more to how we should look at vision and visual function. Um, and, you know, even athletic performance, there wasn't really much done in the space. There, there was some seminal papers that were done by, by colleagues, you know, Dan Labby and Dave Kirshner, they, they did some work in, in sports. They've been doing it for quite some time. And so I, I did some research when I was a resident and I noted that, you know, this was an area that could benefit from more, you know, quantifiable research. And that's where I, I spent my time as a resident as I started working on research, looking at how athletes perceive and whether there's differences in perception and how to measure that, that difference. And so I really focused on the retinal ganglion cells. And, you know, the way I kind of take the analogy is just like with athletes and the way we um, look at athletes in terms of, you know, muscle build and composition and, you know, how many fast and slow twitch and, and things of that nature to identify, you know, different um, biomechanical, uh, you know, methods of optimization for what role, you know, what sport and so forth. I'm like, can we do the same thing with sensory information? Can we, can we look at the different ganglion cells in the same way as fast and slow twitch muscles? And so what I did was I did a lot of research with, you know, at the time, the University of Arizona's baseball and basketball team were both in the top 10. And so, you know, I had access to them. And so I started doing studies, looking at upregulation of M cells, magnocellular cells. And what I found was that my theory was that if you could see a, a, a fastball at 90 to 100 miles per hour, your ability to pick up motion was very much more upregulated in terms of perception. And made sense, right? If you can see a moving object very fast and you'll react to it faster. And, you know, so, so when I did the study, it was actually the opposite. Those that were the best at batting actually had a, right. had an upregulation of non-M cells. And so, you know, I didn't grow up playing baseball. I played football and basketball and ran track. And so I, there was a lot of discovery when I was actually surveying the athletes and a lot of them could see the seams of the ball as it was coming out of the pitcher's hand. And, you know, you have a split second to be able to make a decision to swing. So when you think about that, um, it kind of made sense that detail and certain colors were, were needed, you know, that, that ability to pick up those types of visual stimuli was more important. And that detail was more related to non-M cells, like your parvo and coniocellular cells. And so at the time, you know, my God, like, oh, this is pretty cool. You know, I... I did some patents on it. I was like, you know, I, I came up with this concept of like a, a visual, you know, processing profile. So perception, you know, was something that just kind of spoke to me at that time. And so at the time I was going to be doing a fellowship in cornea refractive surgery. And, you know, 
it's at that time where my road kind of changed. That's when I withdrew from the fellowship match to start a company. And the company was a video game company because I figured if I can find out these profiles, maybe I can actually take the profile to somebody that doesn't have it like for a uh, exceptional batter and improve it. And so I started a video game company called iSport Games right out of residency. It was probably the, one of the most difficult decisions I made because, you know, we're so structured in our in our career mm -hmm. trajectory. Um, and yeah, so then what happened was I, just like any other kind of, if you've watched Silicon Valley, the TV show you know, on HBO and, you know, some of these other like entrepreneurial movies and TV shows, I, it was kind of the same thing. I was couch surfing in the Bay Area, <laughs> working <laughs> part-time ophthalmology. Everyone thought I was insane. Um, you know, family, parents are like, why did you spend all this time to, you know, try your luck as, as an entrepreneur? But, you know, at that point I was young and I hadn't necessarily like really failed at anything to, 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 to much of a, you know, much of a degree, but it was a humbling experience, you know, because when you start moving into a different industry and a different type of uh, expertise, um, it's, you know, it's scary. It's unstructured. It's not like how we trained. It's not how we went through our process. So I had to learn a lot about business, had to learn a lot over the time. But what I did learn was one, the, the game worked. We actually were able to improve uh, batting performance by 22% on field. I worked with major league baseball um, and, you know, I worked with different players and um, in the sport, I'm not sure if I can name those players, but um <laughs> But one of them that used the uh, technology was actually third in MVP voting that year. Um, but what I did learn too was, you know, timing of markets, UI, UX, you know, so user interface, you know, design around the user experience. And, you know, it was a very uh, seminal time in, in the Valley. Uh, that was when you started seeing eye tracking and EEG and different technologies like that, that we were familiar with in a clinical setting, they were starting to be democratized into, you know, consumer applications and people were trying to figure out what was the killer application for eye tracking, you know, uh, what was the killer application for EEG, can I use an EEG to, uh, you know, control a remote control car with that cell, like, you know, I got to see all this very early on in their, in their life cycles. And that really helped later on in my career. So what happened was the recession hit. I went back. I did a fellowship in neuro-ophthalmology and orbital surgery at, at the time, USC Doheny Eye Institute. And, you know, prior to, to getting into my fellowship, I, you know, I did meet some of the execs in gaming and, you know, Electronic Arts, Sony, Take-Two Interactive, all the major players. Everyone was very interested in this concept of being able to have an interactive experience like gaming that had some kind of a benefit to an individual outside of the entertainment value. Um, because at the time, you know, gaming wasn't considered something that was, you know, it, it wasn't something that was looked at in a positive light. Let's just say that, mm -hmm. right? You know, this was like the mid-aughts, so uh, mid to late aughts. So, to that extent, you know, everyone loved it. They're like, this is great. But the big question was, how do we, how do we sell this? They're like, you know, it looks like, like the home run derby game looked like a home run derby baseball game, but it didn't have, you know, at, at a certain point in the game, you started having certain filters of color and certain types of aspects that were more related to the ability to neuromodulate with different psychometric algorithms. 
And, you know, so different colors would be behind the picture. You know, the ball would start to get more transparent. Um, and they're like, well, you know, how do we sell this to the, to the audience? Can you, do the colors have to be there? Does it have to look exactly like this? At the time I was more of the scientist than I was, you know, the entrepreneur. So I was like, yes, this, this is how it has to be. Cause this is how we did the studies. And then what I, what I realized when I did my fellowship is I needed to think differently. I needed to think about how do you get that same technology to, to, to scale to a larger audience. And in order to do that, you know, one of the things I learned from that, from that first company was I needed to think about human behavior. And I think I needed to think about how to make technology passive and non-intrusive to somebody's day to, to how they currently like do their, you know, their day. That's, that's kind of how the best technology today works. You don't really think about how it works. It just works. Right. So that was an important right. lesson to kind of learn. Um, and fellowship, that's when I started playing around more with the software and I started looking more at how to make it more uh, invisible. And at the same time, we started doing studies. So we started looking at folks, we use the same baseball game. One of my mentors, uh, Alfredo Sedun, uh, just brilliant, brilliant, uh, you know, clinician scientist. He's like, let's go ahead and use this baseball game on folks that have, um, you know, that have visual field deficits, whether it's from strokes, whether it's from tumors, let's see what happens. And what was really interesting was, you know, we, we present this at Arvo, and I think we also put this in a paper, is that even though it was a baseball game that was designed for neuromodulation for improved batting performance and improved batting performance by 22%, we noticed in some of these patients that it would improve different aspects of visual function. So mm -hmm. in one, it improved visual contrast, you know, so the ability to, you know, and this was a gentleman that, that did a lot of near work and uh, had issues with lighting conditions. So it didn't improve his visual acuity, but improved his contrast sensitivity, or the other one improved the visual field. You know, how much of that was related to microsaccades? You know, it was a, it was a small case study, and, um, but it was promising because it was like, well, there might be something here in terms of neuromodulation and, you know, neuroplasticity, but how do we measure it? Because in some folks, it might present as, you know, an improvement in one area of visual function compared to another. Um, so that was very important for my career as I moved forward. Um, and, you know, then I moved on, you know, I kept one foot in academia and one foot in industry. So I moved up to UC Davis and I was head of neuro-ophthalmology there. And at that time I started an innovation lab and I started looking at taking some of my experiences in the Valley, you know, into clinical practice. And so one of them was around how to measure brain function using eye tracking, EEG, and people measurements. The use case was traumatic brain injury. And, you know, one of the things I looked at was, you know, just pragmatic use case. Because at first I bought the most expensive eye tracker, and then I realized it wasn't portable. And then I'm like, okay, <laughs> I was thinking about who would actually use this. And I was thinking about, okay, when you think about like peewee league soccer or football or baseball, basketball, whatever, um, it's like, you'll have parents that might need to use this that are the coaches. And I'm like, how can they use it? So we made it. So, so it doesn't have to be the fastest Hertz at the time. You know, there's like a 5,000 Hertz eye tracking system. I went with 60 Hertz 
I'm like, where in the, where in the um, literature does it say that one is superior to the other? Mm-hmm. I think sometimes, you know, we try and over-optimize things right from the get-go and it makes for very exp- expensive, like cost to, to experiments um, where we can just look at practical ways of like, okay, who's actually going to use this and work backwards? So I learned a lot about like product design in that sense and, you know, and just practicality. So we came up with a system that we were, that, that we were, you know, utilizing. And at that time I started getting a lot more interest from, from industry. So when you talk about augmented reality and virtual reality, think about this about 10 years ago, I was seeing this very early on and they had different questions. They had questions, not just about eye tracking. And at the time, a lot of them didn't have eye tracking um, uh, uh, capabilities, but they were, you know, the big question was, if I put somebody in a VR system, what happens to them after 12 hours? You know, um, can they go drive? You know, will this affect their orientation? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we, you know, what makes them nauseous? You know, so things like accommodative mismatch and, you know, visual vestibular dysfunction, they weren't necessarily um, common in nomenclature as they are now. I mean, obviously they are now if you're actually studying that area and you're involved with like human ergonomics around VR and AR systems. But back then, no one really knew. So, you know, I did a a paper looking as a meta-analysis over the last 60 years. I mean, VR has been around forever. Just people might not have realized that. And the reason why it hasn't taken off is because there's certain aspects in design that could use an ophthalmic touch. (laughs) You know, so it's really interesting that you know, when I when I went into some of these companies, they had a lot of brilliant engineers and they had a lot of brilliant vision scientists, but they didn't have a lot of ophthalmology input. Um, I mean, you could see that with Google Glass, you know, the way the this just the way the screen was projected up and to your right. I mean, you know, when you think about visibility and, and how often does does a person look up? If you're not a child that has to look up for survival, where's my parents, you know, you know you're, you're, you're at disadvantage just strictly from height. Um, you know, as an adult, we don't really look up that much. So like to have it where you're looking up and, and off to the side, just from a pragmatic standpoint, you know, it didn't quite, you know, it, it, it wasn't, you know, as optimized as it could be. Um, same thing, you know, so, so that's when I started getting more into the AR world and more into the VR world. Aside from writing papers, I also kind of was, you know, was involved with, you know, companies pretty early in their life cycle. Um, and, and then from there, you know, I, I started another company called Bizarro, where I was looking at, um, you know, reverse engineering the brain again, but through software. And, um, you know, and what we did was we we're looking at how we perceive from a visual standpoint and the different modes of it. And, and that's where we came up with the vision performance index as well. Um, and so the reason why I came up with that is if you look at early in my career arc, when we were talking about uh, the studies we did at USC and we didn't quite know why it was helping some people with their contrast sensitivity and others with their visual field, it's because we had no way of measuring that. And then going back to benchmarks, we use a benchmark of visual acuity for everything, for optical dispensaries, for cataract surgeries, for glaucoma, for literally everything we do, that's our major benchmark. And what I realized through my, through my experience over that last decade was that 
you know, we're missing things. We focus so much on structure in clinical practice that we don't necessarily really, um, you know, maybe at the detriment of looking further upstream. Because when you have structural damage, it's, you know, you're, you're just trying to, you know, prevent further loss. But if you look upstream, you could potentially prevent any loss, you know, because you'd be able to identify from different aspects. So, so that was kind of the, the genesis behind, you know, the VPI. And so, you know, I worked a lot on creating a multimodal perceptual AI system. I know that's a lot of words <laughs> for, and, and that, and that ended up being Vizario. But during that time, I also, you know, spent time, you know, I'd left UC Davis, was at the UC system working on just helping industry agnostic, just helping with technology. And then uh, was at the University of Utah Marana Eye Center. So it was, it was great to be back there for a period of time. And then I came, then I got recruited to Stanford. And as, as you mentioned, you know, started the human perception lab, which is a lot more technical in terms of solving a lot of human machine interfaces uh, to help address issues like what we have in VR and AR right now. And then also the vision performance center to kind of look at, look at how we see clinics and how we look at, at, at these new technologies. And so it has two functions. One is to be able to identify new technologies coming out and the practical applications and be able to study it from a human subject standpoint, but also look at our clinics differently. When you think about it, you know, everything we do in this whole concept of the metaverse, so much of it's visual. And when you think about that, there's, there's so many opportunities for us to, to play a part in this space. Well, well, Kaiser, normally um, when, you know, folks on the podcast who are physicians tell us about their career arc, I can normally find some point of resonance. But here, yours is one of the most nonlinear um, career arcs. And I congratulate you on that for being, you know, so bold uh, and courageous in those steps. Tell us. What makes you so interested in this area? Because the terminology you were using, I don't think I've really heard of a lot of these phrases, uh, certainly in clinical practice, but of course we do hear them in the technology world. So do you see yourself as a technologist who happens to be doing some elements of medicine or are you a medic who then focuses on tech? And you know, moving forward, I know you and I both get lots of inbound from um, younger folks who are interested in the intersection of tech and medicine, do you think we need to have that delineation in the future? So where do you see yourself and where do you see the future of tech and medicine going? It's uh, a great question. Uh, you know, for the longest time I had imposter syndrome because when I was, you know, so in terms of the, the first question, in terms of am I a, a, a medic that's tech or a technologist that also is a medic. <laughs> I don't know if I phrased that back right. Um, you know, at the beginning of, of my career arc, obviously I was more comfortable, you know, as a physician and, you know, the technology I had to learn. It was almost like the way I described that very for the first company was, it was almost my own fellowship in entrepreneurship. I had no real direction other than what I could research and, you know, the different meetings I went to and, uh, and, you know, the nice thing about the Valley, there was always something going on. So you could always go to a meeting and kind of learn, ask questions and so forth. And then, you know, as my careers evolved, you know, once you start learning these things, and then, you know, I, I think, you know, 
I was able to connect a lot of dots and, and, and create a lot of parallels and analogies because, you know, what we do is very system oriented. What an engineer does is very system oriented. It's just, we don't really talk to each other much. Uh, you know, if you go to any kind of social gathering, you're going to be more comfortable talking to other clinicians, no matter what field, just because we can relate and, you know, and engineers do the same and so forth finance and, you know, the list goes on and on. Um, and then over time I started getting more comfortable and then it was the opposite. You know, I recently had to give a talk, you know, at Academy subspecialty and I was nervous speaking to my peers about, you know, AI and glaucoma <laughs> and, and I, I like, I believe in some ways I might've overprepared for that. So it's kind of interesting where, where I lie. So, you know, at this point, I, I don't know how I describe myself. I would, I would probably say, you know, um, right in the middle, you know. At some in some in some arenas, I'm a technologist more, and in other arenas, I'm I'm a physician more. So, um, as for the future, yes, I think you know, and I think for these physicians that are now coming out, I mean, it's an exciting time for all those folks. I think in the last, I've, I've been seeing them probably like the last five years. I've had more, uh, you know, med students and residents that connect with me. And these are folks that have grown in a, in a digital world. And so for them, it's, it's a lot more native. It's a lot more familiar and they're able to do things that we wouldn't have even thought of. So I'm really excited about that. And we've already, you know, there's, there's some I've mentored. I'm really proud of some of the things that they've done. I mean, their contributions to, you know, AI in the space and their contributions, even on the device side. Um, and I think there's going to be more. And as, as, you know, from a, a residency standpoint, uh, I think it will be important to to arm them with those tools and to also identify those folks and give them paths. I know at Stanford we have uh, we have some of those paths for some of our residents and even our fellows. We even have a fellowship in the area, so I think you're going to see a lot more of that uh, be more uh, of a standard rather than just uh, you know a one off in terms of these hybrid approaches. Well, it's great to see you know people like you, although you're quite unique, um, to to enable. Uh, the residents and medical students of the future to undertake the, this path. But Kaiser, I want to ask you, you know, you talked about the kind of silos that we have. We, we clinicians enjoy talking to other clinicians. Um, and, you know, you talked about your experience at Academy about, you know, preparing for an audience in a, uh, even though you were almost a relative outsider in that context. So why are you doing this? Because, you know, most folks in ophthalmology they kind of like what we, we, well, I'm an ophthalmologist too, of course, you know, it's, it's great. You kind of have that interaction with patients. You feel like a rock star when you do some surgery or you manage a patient very well. Um, you know, it's, it's a, a kind of great subspecialty to, to, to practice. We can play in many areas. It, in some ways, it sounds like you've chosen a really tough path, right? To play outside of the regular sandpit with folks who are not naturally uh, aligned to medicine and to, to almost establish yourself as someone who is not part of the, the ophthalmology typical crowd. So what drives you to kind of choose this path? Wow. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, that's a very introspective question. Um, I would say what drives me down this path, I think, you know, it started off with my mentors. You know, a lot of them were just always curious and asking questions. And then it just, mine just kind of led to some of the loves I had before, because, you know, I've always loved sports and I've all, always loved gaming. I've been doing it, you know, forever. So that kind of, you know, 
when I was able to kind of mix the two uh, through, through my career, it was one of those things where I was like, huh, this is really cool. I always kind of had this entrepreneurial spirit from, from a young age, but I think what really hit me was, you know, you know, <laughs> I've taken the path, you know, less traveled, even within ophthalmology, because, you know, right. a lot of folks look at neuro-ophthalmology and they're like, you know, uh, we're the new it. I just want to let everybody know there should be a lot more residents in uh, in med students looking at neuro ophthalmology. I need to give a shout out to to my folks there because you know we used to always be seen as oh my gosh these guys are non surgical, not interesting. It's just a lot of folks with different eye misalignments, and I don't want any part of it. <laughs> and when you think about it, that's literally you know when we when we look at where technology is going in human machine interfaces, it's being able to really have a good understanding of, of how humans work and how the biological systems work. And, you know, that's one thing that neuro-ophthalmology gave me is from a perception standpoint, really understanding cranial nerves. And the cranial nerves went beyond just the eyes. It's really, when you think about the eyes are embryonically part of your brain. And then, you know, you think about the brainstem, it's getting all your sensory information, coordinating it with, you know, the rest of your lobes and the cerebellum. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like a beautiful symphony. So, so in that sense, you know, that's why I picked neuro-ophthalmology, right? It really helped me with understanding some of my early research. So, you know, that's kind of the unbeaten, because I was going to do cornea refractive. I figured, oh, I'd do sports because then I could help them with, you know, their refractive issues, you know, but then when I realized there's much more to visual function, I thought differently. And, when I was in your ophthalmology, we don't get to see many patients because <laughs> you can't have, you know, large clinics. You can't see like 60 patients a day. And then what I realized is how do I take this knowledge and scale it? And the fact is I started working with, you know, technology companies and I'm like, well, you know, here's a way I could scale. The interesting thing was even back then, a lot of them were the consumer tech companies. And when I was looking at it, I was like, why isn't a lot more of our industry coming into this at that time. This was 2010, 11, 12, 13. I'm like, we should be leading this, you know, not the other way around. And it's, I can kind of see that catching up, but I think it takes, you know, you know, so to answer the question, it was a scale thing. I wanted to be able to help people, you know, at scale with the knowledge that I have as much as it was rewarding operating and seeing patients consistently what I realize is like, you know, from everything I learned, I'm like, why not apply this out? It'd be great to be able to apply this, not just on the consumer tech side, but also with our own industry. Because I think that there's a lot that we can lead on in here. There's still a lot of questions. No, scale and impact. Uh, it makes sense. And that's really well articulated and good of you to share with us something that is clearly something that's a very personal question as well. Let's move forward now to 2023. You've talked about your, your passion for sports uh, and for gaming, and certainly I think many of us can see how the metaverse might apply in that context. Firstly, I'm going to ask you a dreadful question, which is to explain to us what is the metaverse as far as you see it, and then tell us, you know, the metaverse is having an impact in the consumer segment, but do you think it's going to be truly impactful in improving patient outcomes? So start with the dreadful question first. What uh, is the questions are great because there's like three <laughs> questions layered in. Uh, so, so starting with my definition of the metaverse, and there's a lot of definitions of the metaverse, but I would say that the metaverse 
simply it's an application interface for this next version of the internet, which we're calling Web3. Um, and what that means is it's very much more experiential. It's immersive and it's things that you can do on the consumer side, it's the thing that you can do on the enterprise side. It might be an augmented experience, it might be a virtual experience, you know, it might be a mixed experience. But that's basically, you know, how I see it. Um, and so a lot of what you've seen in the metaverse isn't just the, the experience side of just like an application where you go to like a, a virtual meeting or a storefront, but also what do you do in that? So that's where the commerce and everything kind of happens. And that's where you probably saw a lot of the things around the finance aspects of it and DeFi. Web3 is more of the infrastructure. So that's more related to like a decentralized approach. That's where we talk about blockchain. You know, that's where we talk about really like the telecommunications, 5G, uh, you know, the different types of cloud services, uh, that's, that's where all of that comes from. Um, and even the, the devices that could be used to enable those, those application interfaces. Is that, that was short enough. <laughs> that was succinct. One of the best, the best understanding I have to date. So, so thank you. And, and now, you know, bring it back to, to, um, clinical medicine, because I, you know, I see across sort of, uh, certainly within the pharmaceutical industry, uh, many marketing teams, of course, try and place the metaverse in that context but do you really think we're going to have a true impact on patient outcomes and if so you know what use case examples could you think of <laughs> so that's that that's the that's a one billion dollar question is what are the applications for everyone everyone's listening now <laughs> wanting to know so they can plan it for their business plans for this year so <laughs> you know having seen and being involved with companies that you know have gotten a lot of money that haven't been able to to you know the, the key question is figuring out figuring out the right application and i and i think in in our field and we think about from patients there's a few ways for the metaverse to to present itself um it, in ours and you know part of it is you know i know we're looking a lot in terms of surgical outcomes and like you know in the operating field um the key driver here is is maybe not from a revenue standpoint it might just be from an efficiency so indirect like uh cost savings uh it's kind of similar when we first started doing femto like cataract surgery right mm. you know, first it was cumbersome but then over time, it became it, it starts becoming the thing we do for premium lenses because it's more precise and you really decrease the risk. Mm. And you can then, you know, you, you can utilize it in that standpoint. I think when we look at applications with AR, VR, we have to look at it in the same way, right? Is what so like you know, we're we're talking about, for example, like live events like the Academy, and you know, think about logistics and costs it's like okay how do you do this in a metaverse experience right in a in a vr experience or digital experience it doesn't have to be when we talk about virtual experience everyone thinks about an oculus headset because right. yes, done a great job in their advertising <laughs> but no it can you know uh, a virtual experience is even what we're doing we're both sitting like halfway across the world from each other and we're having a conversation you know i can put an avatar on where i look like a bear um and i do do that it's called dr kaberi but anyway i like um, it <laughs> that with some of my students but um in that sense then i'm an avatar so so we're already doing a lot of these so it's really making it simplistic but it's kind of you know so what what would be the importance of doing that for an academy meeting well for folks that couldn't make it there in person and be able to see this and have an experience it could be 
you know, they could still pay, but at a, at a fraction of the cost. But then, you know, you think about from a sustainability, you don't have all these plane flights and so forth. And, you know, maybe there's an interactive like boots for even all the new types of equipment. So that's where, you know, there's, that's just one of the low hanging fruit because people are already playing in that space, but it's kind of think that way, what kind of value, what value creation do we have? Because otherwise they're all just experiments of like, Hey, this could be cool. But if no one, if, the, if no value is explicitly created, then, you know, what's the point? So, in, and so in terms of like 2023 and where do I see things happening in terms of, you know, the metaverse in, in ophthalmology, I think you'll start seeing somebody come up with that application. It might be in, in that space. It might be, you know, when you, when you talk about the pharmaceutical space, it might be looking at decentralization and in terms of clinical studies. I know that's been something that people have been wanting to do for some time. That's one thing that blockchain can, can enable. If anyone's interested, that's something that we're working on as well with, you know, more of a decentralized CRO. Um, I think that is a practical use case for both blockchain technology and also for our industry from a pharmaceutical angle. So, you know, I kind of, I'm kind of breaking up from clinical. It's like, okay, we still have to figure out what that killer application is. Could be on the in, interoperative, you know, right now it's probably in just on meetings, but in terms of like what we can do from a pharmaceutical standpoint, I think there's tremendous opportunity right now to, to do a lot and, and things that might, you know, cause before people were talking about, hey, how can I do, a you know, they weren't using the term decentralized, but it's like, hey, how can I do remote clinical studies? Right, but the big right. question is, is on, you know, authorization, authentication, you know, what types of uh, metrologies do I use? You know, what can I glean out of camera data? What can I glean out of certain other sensors? Now, there's a lot of ways of connecting all of those. So I'm really excited about that. One that's sort of metaverse related that I think is really exciting that you will probably see some applications by Q3, Q4, probably in the marketplace, if someone's starting now or started in December, is, is OpenAI's chatbot GPT, right? Like, I don't know if you played yeah. around, but That's when you great. think about how to create an application around that, especially, you know, consumer facing, I think there's a lot of exciting things that can be done uh, in terms of patient education and in terms of, you know, an interface that can then funnel to clinical practice. Um, so, so I, you know, as one use case, was that, I, I think there might've been a third part to your question, but I can't. I well, can't I, I think actually I was going to ask you more um, in a, a follow-up question, which was about your predictions for 2023, but I think you, you nicely encapsulated those there, unless there, I mean, it wouldn't be a January podcast unless we asked a few prediction questions. So you mentioned decentralization of trials, uh, thinking about the scope uh, from a sort of conference and pharma value proposition. Um, but feel free to add any more predictions because it, it's always something that people love to hear at the beginning of the year, particularly relating uh, to, to health and tech. Yeah, I, I think the other thing is, is um, it might be towards the end of this year, but when you think about biomedical devices that are gonna be pretty exciting, um, you'll probably see some head mounted display out that will actually have a killer application. Mm. You know, I know Sophia, you and I were talking a little bit before this about, you know, this leak from Apple <laughs> in terms of, right. in, in terms of like their new headset. 
Well, when we think about these things, these are all biomedical devices, whether it was a Google Glass or, you know, a Meta or, you know, VR headset. And now in terms of, you know, even an Apple headset, anything that's an augmented reality device is going to need corrective lenses. And, you know, so when you think about this that way, we should be front and center. You know, when you think about where someone should buy this, you know, I don't see myself buying glasses at Best Buy to wear just for, you know, you know, my optical shop. I see that, you know, the places I go and get my 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 lenses and frames. So, you know, I think when when some of the folks that might be listening might be thinking, how do I even get involved? Like, I don't understand. It's 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 understanding that the, you will be involved. It's just where do you want to get involved with early or not? So I think, you know, in terms of, you know, there will be one biomedical device, one of these headsets that will come out that will have an application that will start off the, you know, um, the adoption. And, you know, I think it'll be more on the augmented reality side. You know, one of the big questions in terms of adoption was field of view, you know, the field of view, this is what we do. If you do a visual field of your ophthalmologist, you know, so when you think about it, it's like, you know, one thing that's exciting, if this is true from the leak from the, uh, in terms of Apple is, you know, they potentially might've solved some of the issues around field of view for augmented reality. Um, because, you know, that's one of the rate limiting steps is, is, you know, how much of an augmented experience you can have compared to, and how can you overlay it over your, your, your real physical environment? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And it's a fascinating element you've raised, which is the, the close intersection of what we do, particularly in neuro-ophthalmology and what, you know, the folks at Apple and the problems they're trying to solve for as well. And that brings me on to, to my next uh, question for you, which is, you know, you talked about how folks might be intrigued by what you're doing or, you know, maybe listening and thinking, yes, I want to be a part of this, this mission. So, you know, if people uh, are listening across the world, as we say, you and I are on opposite sides of the world right now, what's the best way for them uh, to reach out to you? Is this something you're receptive to? Tell us more. Yeah, no, absolutely. Would would love to collaborate with folks. Um, the best way to reach me is, you know, my my email. Do I just get my email out? Is that, is that how it typically works? We can put it in the show notes. Don't worry. I think if you're <laughs> okay. fine with that, we can give you a profile with your email address or something. Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, we're doing, you know, at the beginning of this year, we're, we're, we're going to be doing some pretty interesting things. Like I said, we're going to be working, working with decentralized like CROs and that concept. And we're going to also be doing a lot with uh, the Vision Performance Index um, because, you know, what we've done there is, created a way to democratize how to measure visual function um, in any software application. So to put it in simpler terms, you could play video games and we, we'd be able to capture, you know, a couple hundred psychometric uh, measures. Uh, the individual gets a game score, but then they also get composite of how they're, how they're functioning both visually, cognitively, and from, from their motor abilities as well. So um so there's certain things that we can do in terms of collaboration for those that are not looking from a collaboration from that standpoint but maybe you want to interact like a student or a resident uh we also definitely have other things that, that we're working on that yeah happy to happy to chat well, we hope your inbox doesn't get too flooded after this <laughs> podcast is is released in a couple of weeks time um Kaiser, just finally you know this has been such a kind of my 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 neuronal connections are kind of uh, having to be rewired 
during this conversation. I mean, you're a physician, you're a surgeon, you're an entrepreneur, you're a futurist, you have all these collective experiences and, you know, I'm sure there are many more to come. You know, what's, uh, is there one particular theme that really keeps you motivated and ready to face challenges? Because, you know, you told us from uh, right at the outset that this is a, you know, uncharted territory for, for many people. So how do you manage to keep an even keel and, and feel centered in what you're doing? Uh, that's, that's a great question. I think, you know, and, you know, we, we've talked about this in the past about, you know, just like purpose and, you know, what you feel like you're here for. And, you know, for me, my purpose and passion is around, you know, just creating, you know, with all my collective experiences is like human centered technologies. I think, you know, when you think about the, you know, to date, how we've been viewing technology, I think a lot of the folks from, from a, a medicine background, we've kind of said, okay, we'll just stay in our little silos and do clinical care and not really apply our, our knowledge and our expertise, you know, in a consumer scalable way or technology scalable way. I think now is a, you know, what drives me is the ability to do that, to, to create technologies that are more human centered. And, you know, that's why we really focus on human machine interfaces. How do we, you know, in my lab, it's how do we, how do we allow, you know, I can perceive you, you can perceive me as humans. You can tell if I'm tired, I can tell if you're upset or things of that nature. It's just, we don't even think about all the different signals humans are giving off. We expect the same thing out of our technologies, but they're not really there yet. Right now we just consume the technologies. It's been really easy for hu humans to interact with technology. Well, we're, what, what I'm trying to unlock and what to really solve the question of human-centered technologies is how do we teach machines to interact with humans easier? and to make their lives better. And I think, you know, I appreciate being on this podcast because, you know, it's it's one of those things where not just from sharing experiences, but I think there's a lot of other folks that think the same way and might not know how to how to get involved or or, or how to approach that, whether it's at an individual level or a corporate level, right? Um, you know, we know that this is moving. We know that the metaverse is going to happen. Web3 is going to happen. These devices are going to come out. It's like, what does that mean for me as, as someone that consumes it, you know, as a, as a customer, and then also someone that could potentially have a greater impact by applying their knowledge to it. Yeah, well said. And I'm sure there will be folks listening right now who suddenly have that you know, feeling of like their hair, their hair and their skin is prickling because they suddenly realize that they, they are able to move forward and they've been motivated by your words today. So for me, it was what you said, uh, purpose and passion. So Kaiser Kaderi, thank you so much for joining us on the OIS podcast today. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for having me, Sophia.